So in, in some ways, it's tempting to it's tempting to see progress when you see you know hundreds of people out on the street night after night after night as we have here in Louisville. Um, but in some ways, it, it also feels like we're kind of stuck in the mud um, with regard to where we've been on criminal justice reform for the last two decades, if not longer, I'm sure longer. I'm Jack Newton, CEO of Clio, and this is the Daily Matters podcast. On Daily Matters, we talk with legal professionals, industry leaders, and subject matter experts about the future of law. We explore where the legal industry is headed, how legal practice is changing, and what you can be doing to position yourself for success. This episode of Daily Matters is brought to you by the 2020 Clio Cloud Conference, the world's best legal conference, which is going completely virtual for the first time ever. Get your pass now at cliocloudconference.com. Today's guest is Dan Cannon, a civil rights lawyer, teacher, writer, speaker, consultant, and activist based primarily in Indiana and Kentucky. Dan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot for having me. So Dan, to start off, can you tell our audience a bit about yourself and your career? Well, sure. Um, you know, I am um, a high school dropout turned law professor. Um, that, about, uh, that about covers it. Uh, a typical <laughs> career path. Sure. Yeah, pretty normal. No, I, uh, um, I, I, I dropped out when I was a junior in high school to, I don't know if you want to go that far back. I dropped yeah, out when I was a junior Yeah, I want to hear the story. To, to be a musician. And so I was a professional musician for about a decade um, and, you know, mostly teaching and, uh, and playing, in the, playing regionally. And, um, and then I went back to school and got a law degree. And this is the uh, short version, obviously. Um, and started practicing. I was a trial lawyer. Uh, doing mostly employment discrimination cases and um, what we would call constitutional litigation. So uh, police violence cases, um, inmates rights litigation, and, and just generalized constitutional litigation, First Amendment cases, that kind of stuff. Um, for uh, you know about 15 years and, and over the last few years, um, I have been uh, sort of dragged kicking and screaming back into the realm of, of academia. And um, I'm, I'm heading up the clinical program at the University of Louisville now. That's an amazing career path, Dan. Um, there's it's a, unusual, I guess. <laughs> a, a few moments of your, your career I'd love to, to dig into as well. You were lead counsel for the Kentucky plaintiffs in the landmark Supreme Court case of Obergefell versus Hodges, which brought marriage equality to all 50 U.S. states. Uh, what was it like being part of that that case? That must have been a, a pretty incredible experience. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, you know, you don't, I mean, you, when you start law school, especially if you're a do-gooder wanting to do do-gooder things in law school like I was, you know, you read about these constitutional cases, like the big civil rights cases in your constitutional law book, and, you know, you sort of fantasize about that kind of thing. You don't actually ever think that it's going to happen to you. Um, but we were, you know, I was in the right place at the right time um, for that case, and uh, the stars all aligned perfectly. And, um, you know, as it turns out, there just aren't that many people doing civil rights litigation in Indiana or Kentucky. And, um, you know, this this fell into um, the lap of, well, fell into my lap and fell into our, our firm's lap, and sort of we just uh, were, were hanging on for the ride. Um, there's a whole movie about it called Love Versus Kentucky. Uh, where we had, there were documentarians that ended up following us after the first big victory. Um, 
but uh, you know in in 2013 i mean it's weird to look back on it now because it seems you know marriage like seems like such a foregone conclusion even five years on but in 2013 when we filed the case it was anything but and we didn't know how it was going to shake out um and and getting that first opinion from a judge in the western district of kentucky that said yeah you know you're right about everything and your clients you know, deserve um, the equal dignity that's afforded to any other couple. Um, you know, that's, that, was, that was pretty exhilarating. And then, you know, from there, it was just kind of a tidal wave to the Supreme Court. Uh, another high-profile case uh, you've been part of, uh, Dan, has been suing Donald Trump uh, in the Wanguma versus Trump case. Can you tell us a little bit more about that case and, and, and some of the, the learnings and perspectives you've gained from, from that? Well, yeah. And I mean, I think that that's the kind of case that is sort of, and I'm, I'm going to sound like a total you know, pessimist or a total cynic, I think, to the people that are listening to this. And I'm not. I mean, I'm an optimist basically about, you know, um, about human beings and about the law in general and even about the American experiment in a lot of ways. Um, but that case is a lot more exemplary of the sort of failures that you're going to get from um, the courts when you're doing civil rights litigation than something like Obergefell, for example, right? I mean, you know, Obergefell was the miracle, and I think, um, you know, Wanguma was the norm. When we filed that case in 2016, you know, against then-candidate Trump, um, it wasn't at all clear that there was going to be a President Trump. In fact, it looked like that was the furthest thing from, you know, reality right. that could possibly be. Um, but we saw, you know, violent incident after violent incident going on at these campaign rallies that he would hold. And, you know, ultimately, we, we said this is in sight. We had a, a, a client, a, uh, my, you know, my client was uh, one, of the only pro, one of the only people of color that was inside uh, the convention center at one of these rallies and, um, you know, it was just the, the, the video made the rounds. If, if folks remember it, um, the, she was, you know, shoved and harassed and, you know, basically, uh, bounced around from person to person and, and manhandled in this, at this rally and called every name in the book. And we got to look at it and said, look, you know, this is, um, bad and it's going to lead to it's dangerous it's going to lead to even more violent incidents and i think it has you know in the in the years since then you've had plenty of violent incidences at these campaign rallies and um so well maybe the courts will actually step in and put a stop to this and so we filed a suit um under the uh under the incitement laws of the commonwealth of kentucky and said you know basically he's inciting a riot here he's asking um his supporters to beat up protesters, to beat up peaceful protesters. Um, and we got a district court judge to agree with us, uh, but the, the, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals um, on an interlocutory appeal said, no, this is perfectly fine. Um, and there's no way that he could have been inciting any kind of violence at his rallies. That's, that's been, you know, two years ago now, three years ago now. Um, and so we have three more years of campaign rallies to look back on and see that this is happening time and time and time again. So I think it, it speaks, this is not the question that you asked me, but I think it, it speaks to um, just how tone deaf the federal judiciary, the federal courts can be to, you know, what is actually happening on the ground and, and um, 
what the you know, sort of real life situation is and how the law can and should respond to that. Dan, when we look more broadly at the, the current state of the world, uh, there's obviously a lot going on that intersects with your area of legal practice and activism, ranging from excessive force by law enforcement to immigration and inmates' rights, uh, LGBTQ rights, uh, and, and so many other areas that uh, involve civil rights. Given everything that's going on, can you share what's on your mind most right now? Oh, well, it's, it's a lot the same as what's been on my mind for the last 20 years, Jack. You know, it's, it's criminal yeah. justice reform. Um, and, you know, as I look at the, the, just right across the river here, we had the Breonna Taylor murder, mm-hmm. which has made a lot of news, you know, over the last couple of weeks. And I'm glad to see that it's making news. And I'm glad to see this sort of forward momentum and people out on the streets and toppling statues and that kind of thing. Um, I, I mean, I see all that as a positive development and you may see, you may ultimately see positive things come out of that, you know, um, city council ordinances get changed and policies get changed at police departments, people get prosecuted and, you know, uh, bad cops get fired and so on and so forth. Um, but I have been watching this for 20 years, you know, in Louisville, I've been watching it for 20 years um, in this part of the country. And, you know, 20 years, almost 20 years ago, there was another Taylor, a James Taylor in uh, Louisville that was handcuffed behind his back and shot 12 times by Louisville police. And we were in the streets and we were carrying signs. I wasn't a lawyer then. I was, you know, I was an undergrad. Um, We were in the streets, we were carrying signs and we were demanding that there be some kind of meaningful reforms happen. A citizens uh, review board or you know, uh, that the officers at least be fired and prosecuted and none of that stuff happened, right? Um, so in, in some ways, it's tempting, to, it's tempting to see progress when you see, you know, hundreds of people out on the street night after night after night as we have here in Louisville. But um, in some ways, it, it also feels like we're kind of stuck in the mud um, with regard to where we've been on criminal justice reform for the last two decades, if not longer, I'm sure longer. Um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of what's been foremost on my mind. And then, you know, how can, what is the role that lawyers are, are, are best suited to play within those movements that are really doing the groundwork that are going to, that's, that's going to create the kind of change that we need. Um, and I think that, you know, that's sort of been where my, my academic interest has been. And my interest as a practitioner too is, you know, how do you, how do you best go out and provide support for Black Lives Matter? It's not always litigation, because again, the federal courts for the most part are going to be tone deaf to the needs of low income folks, of poor folks, of people who are, are being oppressed, um, you know, for whatever reason. Uh, and, you know, again, Alberta fell is kind of the fluke. Um, but, you know, the, the, for, for decades now, you've got a federal judiciary that really just doesn't care. Uh, what police do to black and brown people, what police do to the poor, what happens to people when they're locked up. Um, and so, you know, what are other ways that we can get in besides just smacking something with a litigation hammer? What are the other ways that we can go in and provide um, support to make the real lasting change that we need to see on the ground? And, and you, you talked about being uh, an optimist earlier, does the current moment feel different to you than, than what we've seen in the past? Do you think we're at a so-called tipping point? 
and what kinds of action do you think individual citizens and, and especially individual lawyers can be taking to, to help accelerate some of the change that, that so many of us want to see happen? Well, I, you know, I hope so. I hope that it's, I hope that it's the tipping point. And because I'm an optimist, I've expected that tipping point about, you know, 10 times over the course of my career. Like, this right. is going to be it. You know, I remember um, in Michigan, there was a seven-year-old girl that, uh, you know, a cop busted into the wrong house and shot her in the head with a submachine gun. And that was 10 years ago. And I thought, this is going to be it. This is going to be the point at which, you know, Midwesterners are not going to tolerate this. And there's going to be rioting in the streets and it's going to be, you know, real mm -hmm. accountability. And there wasn't. Um, and so, you know, I see the needle moving a little bit this time, you know, where you've got um, in places like Minneapolis, you've got, you know, a city council saying, yeah, we need to look at different strategies for policing. Great. And I see all that as being, uh, um, you know, positive. And so I, I remain optimistic, um, but I'm not counting those chickens until they're hatched. You know what I mean? Like it's um, it, having, having watched this unfold over the last couple of decades, you know, I'm not super, uh, despite being an optimist, an optimist at heart, I'm not super optimistic that this is really going to be um, it. And what I'm afraid of is that there are going to be incremental changes that are not nearly on the scale that we need to see um, for, for, for you know, I mean, justice, you know, for, <laughs> to achieve actual justice within the justice system, for lack of a better way of saying it, right? So mm -hmm. um, little, little tweaks to city ordinances are not going to do it. Tweaks to policy, you know, to, to a policy manual in a police department is not going to do it. You know, getting rid of the qualified immunity doctrine or any of these other legal doctrines is not going to do it. It's got to be big change. And that's going to require um, us to, you know, continue to remind people, lawyers that have seen this for a long time, to continue to remind people, especially the people that are really doing the yeoman's work in the street, that you know, when you see a light at the end of the tunnel, that doesn't mean that you're out in it yet. That doesn't mean that this is the end. That doesn't mean that you know you've made real progress. So don't be too complacent. I think lawyers have a ha, are good at having an institutional memory for things like that, especially those of us that have been practiced for a little while and been doing this stuff for a while. You know, we have a good institutional memory for those kind of things. Whereas you know, the activists that are a lot of um, college students, you know, twenty somethings that are in the street. Uh, that are really doing the, the, the hard labor in the movement um, don't necessarily know that and don't necessarily recognize progress or lack thereof when they see it. So I think it's one way we can help. But the other way is, is, is to just simply listen, you know, listen to the leaders of, of the movements, especially, you know, um, black and brown leaders of, of movements, um, you know, listen to the people that are actually being, um, oppressed and, and, and calling out for justice and calling out for more fairness within the institutions that govern our everyday lives. Um, if we listen to them instead of sort of trying to do what I think most lawyers want to do and what we go into law school dreaming about doing, which is, you know, charging in on the white horse and saving everybody in the courts or however we're going to save them, um, I think that we can be a lot more effective you know, provide strategic support for Black Lives Matter, provide, you know, um, uh, help with negotiations if it comes down to that, provide some sort of tactical support, you know, get people connected with the resources that they need because lawyers are good at that kind of thing, um, whereas you know, grassroots activists may not be. 
you know, connecting all the dots between the media um, and institutions and activists and, you know, lawyers and judges and whoever else needs to be at the table to make sure that that real change happens. Um, I think that's, that's, and there are a lot of folks at the forefront of the movement lawyering uh, movement that are really working on that and, and, and putting those principles into words and into action. You know, Pervy Shah is a great resource for that sort of thing. Uh, Gabriel Arkles that's doing a lot of um, great work at the ACLU. Um, you know, there's, there's this emerging area of, of scholarship that is teaching us how to do that. And I think we would be well suited to pay attention to it. Dan, you, you talked a little bit about some of the big changes that you think need to, to happen, you know, in, in, instead of what might be these illusory uh, changes, smaller changes that, that might feel like progress, but really, really aren't. What are, what are some of the really big changes you think we need to be examining and considering? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> a lot, but I, 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 the, the foremost thing that's on my mind because of, you know, my, my litigation experience is, you know, what to do with the federal courts. Um, and it's something that doesn't get talked about a whole lot within electoral politics. It's, you know, these hearings happen on the federal judiciary uh, appointees, and they're quickly ushered into, you know, lifelong positions on the bench. Um, at the trial court level, you know, these judges can have um, enormous effects on communities, enormous effects on individual lives. And it's just not something that we pay a whole lot of attention to. Um, and so, you know, the, the kind of changes that, what, what terrifies me, even as being an optimist that I am, is that the, the, the wide scale changes that need to happen in the federal judiciary, I don't see the political willingness to, to get it done from anywhere. You know, um, and to, to repair the federal courts in Kentucky and Indiana, for example, you know, would take an executive that has the fortitude to go in and, you know, appoint lots and lots of new judges, like really create new courts, that kind of thing. Um, and, and throw out a lot of the, the or I say an executive, an executive or a legislature, but you're not going to get that, mm -hmm. um, that, that, you know, has got the political courage to just toss out a lot of the old ways that we've done things and replace them with new ways of doing things. We don't have a judicial system that's built to, um, to rectify the injustices that have been done to the working classes, to poor people, to the disabled, to minorities, to people that are, you know, um, on the, the bottom rung of the, the caste system ladder that we've got in the United States. We just don't have the ability to do that. We don't have a system that's built for that. And I don't think that incremental changes to that system are, are going to get it done. I think it's going to uh, require what basically amounts to um, an unmaking and remaking of the system altogether. And this is maybe a, a good segue into my, my next question, Dan, but you ran for Congress in Indiana in, in 2018. Uh, what motivated you to run for office and what did you learn from that experience? Well, I think it's, you know, when you are a, um, when you're a lawyer that has got, um, you know, access to resources, as many lawyers do, um, and you're looking for different pathways to change, um, and, and you see, as I did, that the courts are, are really not cutting it. 
um, you, you start to look for other ways that you can contribute and you can make a difference and you can make things better. Then um, that's what I was doing, you know, and looking at electoral politics and like, okay, well, um, let's give this a shot and see what happens. It was a tremendous learning experience. Um, it was an absolute nightmare that I could talk about for way more time than what you've got on, <laughs> on this podcast. Um, but, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, terrifying things that you learn about the system along the way when you run a 13-county race that involves, you know, Washington, D.C. and the major players and the coasts and everything else, which, you know, congressional races are. Um, but, uh, you know, it was still an experience I wouldn't trade for the world because, you know, you, you go to law school and you practice for a while and you really think you know how the gears of society turn and then you get sucked into the world of electoral politics and it's like, wow, there's all this other stuff that I had no idea. But you meet lots of great people along the way and you learn stuff that you just can't possibly, like you cannot pay for an education like that. Um, so I'd recommend it to people. I wouldn't trade it for, uh, for anything. Um, I'd like to live in an area that's a little bit more condensed so I don't have to, you know, like my congressional district is two hours across. So anything right. I ever had to go to was, was you know, two hours away. Um, and it's, it's, it's easier for some people in some districts. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, it was, it was a great experience. And so I try to prime my students for that too. You know, I, I think it's, if you're thinking about a career in politics, um, you know, and you're a, you're a do-gooder lawyer that wants to make things better, um, we, we need more people like that to run. There just aren't enough people that are, are doing it for the right reasons. And you see that up close. I mean, that's, you know, sort of like this cliche thing that you think about politics, but you see it up close when you, when you run and you meet other politicians and you see what the field, you know, nationwide looks like in a federal race like that. And they're just, I mean, there are lots of good people out there that would like to run that because of the system that we have, we'll never run and we'll never have the resources to run. Um, and, you know, I think that that mandates those of us who do have those resources to get in and try to change things for the better because it underscores, you know, just the inequalities um, and inequities that are baked into our system from, from stem to stern. Sorry to mix so many metaphors. So, Dan, based on your learnings from this 2018 congressional run, uh, you alluded to, you know, some, some things that surprised you when you, you got into that, that run. If you had to give yourself some advice, uh, the 2018 Dan entering that congressional run, uh, some advice, what, what would some of that advice be? Um, you know, I think that um, I would have uh, reached out to labor leaders earlier um, because the labor movement uh, plays a big part in electoral politics at the, at the congressional level. Um, and that was something that I didn't realize and I wasn't too much in touch with at that point in time. And it's one of the things that I'm really thankful uh, for the campaign to is that, you know, I got to know a lot of the great labor insiders in my area and um, what they're doing and how they're, you know, organizing their workforces. Um, so that's one big thing. And, and, you know, to not discount the possibility, the, 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 the power, I should say, of, of just asking people early on for their support. You know, it's so weird about, um, 
you know, when you when you get into a um, uh, when you get into an election like that, very often it's just like the first person to get there is the person that gets the support, right? You know, so you right. you uh, if you you call somebody that's been a political insider for a really long time and say, hey, will you support me in this run? If you call first, then you're going to get the support and they commit to you, you know, and it has, it really is just more of an early bird gets the worm kind of thing than it is um, policy than it is, you know, your, uh, your abilities as a politician or anything else. Um, you know, the other thing is how different the social media universe is from what's really happening on the ground. You know, I think that is probably the biggest lesson that I've, that one of the biggest lessons that I took away from that campaign is that things look very different in the air, you know, than they do on the ground. Um, so, so the things that blow up to you on Twitter or on Facebook or, you know, like the things that seemed so gigantic to you as a campaign team and as a candidate, um, you know, you go around door to door and nobody's ever heard of any of this stuff. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I think that's another thing too, is that you can never underestimate the degree to which, uh, people that are just trying to work and live their lives are really out of touch with politics. They're really out of touch with the people that represent them are really out of touch with what's going on in the world. Uh, I mean, a bajillion horror stories that you don't have time for, but I mean, that one of the, one of the stories that I tell over and over again is knocking on a door and have a lady, having a lady that was probably in her thirties answer. And I say, Hey, you know, Hey, I'm running for Congress. Um, you learn so much by knocking on doors. But I'm running for Congress, and um, I'd like to have your support. And, you know, are you registered to vote? She stands there for a minute. like, yeah, we're registered to vote. Are you planning to go vote? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think, well, I don't know. Maybe not. <laughs> like, okay, well, why not? But, well, we don't really know any of the candidates that are running. And in Indiana, you have to, you know, you have to either pull a Democratic ballot or a Republican ballot in the primary. Like, okay, well, are you guys, do you guys usually vote Democrat or you vote Republican? She stands there for a minute and kind of looks at me confused and pokes her head inside that, honey, do we vote Democrat or Republican? What do you say? You say Republican? Republican? Which ones are we? So, I mean, that's, you know, like, right. you can never, you can never overestimate, I think, you know, where, yeah. where the general public is on this stuff in terms of their information level or any of that. You know, and and for the most part, people just want to talk about, you know, their dogs and their jobs. And, you know, they don't want to talk about um, Medicare for all. They don't want to talk about the Green New Deal. They don't know anything about that stuff. They're just trying to, you know, work their 60-hour weeks and raise their three kids and, and walk their dogs and, and take care of the day-to-day -day stuff that they, they yeah. have going on in their lives. And that keeps them busy enough. So it's, um, it's a strange universe. <laughs> It's very different from being a lawyer or, or, or being what you think a politician is. And Dan, in an earlier comment, you, you encouraged you know, more lawyers to pursue this path and, and, and that it is a place you can make real impact. What advice would you give to lawyers that are listening that might want to get more involved on the political side of things? How do you start dipping your toe into this? How do you how do you maybe go, you know, more all in and in, in the way that you have, uh, what's that spectrum look like? And what, what would some of your advice be uh, to, to a lawyer that wants to get more involved, but maybe doesn't know how? Well, uh, you know, just go and do it. You know, the law is a very social profession. 
And so mm-hmm. the more people that you can, you know, meet within your geographic, is why I always tell my students, like the best place for you to go to law school is not a Harvard or a Yale, it's where you want to practice. So if you actually want to practice mm-hmm. and you actually want to make an impact in a community, go to law school in that community. You'll meet lots and lots of people. And, you know, what you do with those contacts really matters. And what you tell those contacts about yourself really matters. You know, I've braided myself as a civil rights lawyer since day one. Uh, put it right there in my signature line, you know, even when I had no idea what I was doing. Um, you know, it was always civil rights lawyer. This is what, what I want to do. I want to litigate these constitutional cases and I want to, you know, uh, be a plaintiff's lawyer and uh, represent the unfortunate and the oppressed and so on and so forth. And if you go out and tell people that, it turns out there are not a lot of us out there that really want to do that, especially not in the Midwest or in the South or anything like that. And people will seek you out. They will look for your help. Um, but you, I mean, if you, and especially if you make it known that you're there to help. So connect with community leaders, um, connect with other lawyers. I mean, you know, if you want to do a civil rights practice, the best thing, one of the best things you can do is connect with criminal lawyers, you know, people that are providing criminal defense because, you know, more often than not, They'll have constitutional issues come up with unlawful search and seizure or police brutality or inmates rights or what have you. And criminal lawyers, by and large, don't know how to deal with that stuff and don't know where to send people or don't have any place to send them because there just aren't enough of us doing civil rights practice. Um, But so if you get out there and you meet some of those folks and tell them what you do, um, even if you're not entirely sure what it is you do, at least tell them what you want to do. And, and you'll have those opportunities fall in your lap. You also have to be okay with um, not getting paid for, <laughs> for right. about you know, two years while you're trying to build up a reputation of doing this stuff and figuring out how to, how to make your bread and butter in some other way um, you know, while, you're, while you're developing your niche. Um, but it can be done. And I think it's something that in law schools, we don't talk nearly enough about. You know, the, law schools t- tend to herd students toward, this is changing, but law schools tend to herd students toward um, either the big firm existence where Mm -hmm. you're billing hours, you know, a bajillion hours a year and you're miserable or um, towards public service work where, you know, you're, you can look at yourself in the mirror every day, but you're also living on ramen noodles. Um, And, you know, that's, I mean, those, those are both fine career options, but that's not the only thing that's out there. There's small firms, there are mid-sized firms, you can go out and hang a shingle as long as you have proper mentoring and you know, you can still make a lot of money and you can do things that you feel really, really good about and be a huge asset to your community. We're not emphasizing that nearly enough for law students. I I'm hoping to the extent there's a silver, silver lining to this COVID-19 thing. Um, I, I'm, I'm hoping that we'll start to rethink that, you know, in a big way. Um, and, and send more and more students out to do solo practitioner or small firm um, type work. I'm hoping that's where more, more of our students are going to land anyway, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think there's, there's a huge impact to be made there, and, and people are always going to need lawyers. So if you're out there and you're telling people what it is you want to do, they will find you. Uh- Dan, I'd also love to hear more about uh, the documentary series you're working on, and, and you're also working on a, a book. Can you tell us about those two projects? Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> you're making it sound like I've bitten off way more than I, I can chew, which may or may not be true. Um, 
but uh, the 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 good thing is that the documentary series is, and I, I suppose this the audio. Yeah, you're not going to see the scare quotes on the audio. But the good, I put that in scare quotes. <laughs> the good thing is, uh, about the documentary series is that we've been totally stalemated on that for a few months now. Like we had um, a bunch of filming for our second season set up, um, you know, in March, and then the uh, the apocalypse happened. Um, so. That is just, we, we've got a complete season on that. It's called Midwesticism. And if you go to midwesticism.org, you can watch our first season, you know, about 15 minute episodes um, showcasing the folks that are in and around the Midwest that are, that are working behind the scenes um, to make the world a better place. That's, that's the long and short of it. So we, you know, talk to um, some really interesting people on that and we hope to be able to, to actually do a second season of that. Um, once things, if things ever get back to normal, uh, the book project is about, uh, plea bargaining. And, um, so I'm, I'm under contract with, uh, basic books to, to, um, come up with a book about, uh, plea bargaining, which I'm mostly done with. Um, but the basic premise of it is that, uh, everything you know about plea bargaining, um, in the United States is wrong. Um, and, you know, lawyers have looked at it as a, as a necessary evil for a really, really long time. And what I'm trying to do is poke some holes in that and say, let's, it's, it is evil, but perhaps not as necessary as what we um, have come to believe. And, and in fact, that it's uh, reinforcing like the practice of plea bargaining. I mean, we're, we're plea bargaining, you know, pleading out what 95, 96% of um, all criminal cases, if not higher now. And, um, you know, it's the, the book is intended to take a look at um, what that is doing to the justice system, what it has done to the justice system uh, over time. And the, you know, the premise of the whole thing is that it ain't good. And, mm -hmm. and if we get away with a lot of the, 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 uh, the practice of plea bargaining as it is now in the United States, that we have a better justice system, not an objectively good one necessarily, but at least a better one. Um, so talking about why that is and, and how we can start to, uh, you know, make that shift away from um, a justice system that relies on, you know, almost exclusively um, secret deals that go on between defense attorneys and prosecutors. And when can we look forward to that book coming out, Dan, if that's not uh, trying to attach you too strictly to a deadline? Sensitive topic. No, um, <laughs> I, let's. It's, it's, I'm hoping for an early 2021 release. So uh, that's, that's my hope. Great. I'm almost done with the first draft of the manuscript. So look, look forward to it. And we've certainly had a number of conversations over the past few months on this podcast, highlighting, I think, as you've alluded to, some of the unintended consequences of the, the plea bargain and some of the ways that, that plea bargains enable systemic racism in the, in the system. Well, and just systemically bizarre thing. I mean, this is a whole other podcast episode, right? I mean, right. You know, but it, it's the, the, the criminal justice system is amazing in America because any horrible and unjust thing that you can think of has actually happened someplace. So I'm like, you know, as I, I sit down to write this and I'm doing the research, I'm thinking, you know, I bet I can find somebody that was convicted of a crime that doesn't even exist. Sure. There's thousands of examples of that. Like, okay, well, I bet I can find somebody who um, took a plea to get um, uh, to to get uh, chemically castrated, like, and that was part of the plea bargain. Yes. Okay. How about physically castrated? 
Yes, in fact, that is wow. true. You can find <laughs> all of that stuff. There's, I mean, it's in, in, in what we've managed to fold into the justice system uh, as a result of plea bargaining, because it's not subject to any kind of meaningful review, um, is just insane. Right. Just a, like you said, a, a completely parallel justice system that's happening essentially off the side of the table with no scrutiny and no visibility. That's right. That's right. And the public doesn't care. I mean, like, you know, nobody's, nobody, the, the public is, is wholly separated. You know, the public, as we think about it, is wholly separated from the criminal justice system. So you have the stakeholders in the criminal justice system, the lawyers and the judges and the people, you know, reporters, maybe. Um, and then you have the rest of the planet. And, you know, the rest of the planet never sees the inside, you know, unless they're, unless they're um, repeat offenders. They don't have any meaningful contact with the criminal justice system at all. Uh, and so the, the idea that there is such a thing as a jury of your peers is uh, kind of ridiculous and kind of a sham in, in America in the 21st century. Um, and, and we just don't know anything about it. Like, you know, white um, upper middle class folks like me, unless we're lawyers, we don't know anything about the criminal justice system. And in fact, many of the lawyers don't know anything about the criminal justice system. So Dan, I, I hope the next question isn't so big. It, it prompts a, a separate podcast of its own. Um, so feel free to, uh, to say, stay succinct on this one. But uh, I, I, if, if, you look, if you look at the moment we're in here, an unprecedented time in history, uh, not just in terms of a public health crisis, but the massive political and social change that we're, we're seeing, and we think about what this might be building into in terms of some of the long-term change that we hope to see over the next five to 10 years. What do you hope some of that change looks like? You've cited a couple of specific examples over the course of our conversation of the types of change that you think we need to see. What do you think might be in, within graph for the next decade and how do we work towards realizing that? Um. Feel free, I wish I had a dollar for every time somebody told me, feel free to be succinct about this. Um, I love that. It's very diplomatic. Um, <laughs> I, and, and by the way, I, I don't mean to imply that you've not been succinct in your previous no, no, answers. No, I, I, I know that I'm asking an overly big <laughs> question, expecting it not to take a, an entire podcast of, of its own. I can be really succinct about this one. I don't know. You know, um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what, what, the, I mean, how can I tell you what the world looks like six months from now? Can anybody tell you that? I mean, I don't think not, anybody not can. Days. Yeah, I mean, not not and retain any degree of credibility whatsoever. So, you know, my crystal ball is worth nothing right now. My predictions are worth nothing. What I can tell you is that, you know, I get to work with, you know, I'm privileged enough to get to work with the future of the law every single day. And, um, the reason I'm able to maintain optimism is because I know the folks that are going to go in and reshape the law in my community and reshape the institutions that govern our day-to-day -day lives. And they're all extremely good people. Like they're, they're talented, they're smart, they're good writers, they're good orators and all that stuff, but they're just good people that came to law school for the right reasons and that will want to change the world, you know, for the right reasons. Um, and that gives me a lot of hope. So what are they going to do with the world once they've got the helm? I don't know. Um, but I, I'm trusting that it's going to be the right thing. And I'm trusting that it's going to be better than what my generation or the previous generation has done with it. 
Well, thank you for that, Dan. And thanks for uh, a terrific conversation. I really enjoyed it. And uh, I, I think we'll need to reconnect for a part two on a few of the loose ends that uh, uh, we left behind in, in the course of our conversation. Glad to do it. And there's, there's, there's always, you know, hours and hours worth of this stuff that we can talk about. So anytime you want me back, I'm glad to come back. Look forward to it. And thank you. Thanks. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider for supporting this podcast. 